Hey everybody, I'm Eric Tornberg, co-founder and partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is an episode of Venture Stories, where we deep dive on topics relating to tech and business with some of the world's leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to the Village Global Podcast. I am here with Shilpi Kumar and Seth Winteroth. Shilpi helps Village Global invest in hardware companies, and Seth leads Eclipse. Seth, what is Eclipse? Yeah, so I say I'm a partner at Eclipse. Okay. I help invest out of that fund with the four other partners there. Eclipse is an early-stage venture fund that focuses on investing in full-stack technology companies. Full-stack, to me and to us, means companies that bring together all the elements of hardware and software development together. Integrating both those systems, you know, both the hardware and software together and doing some interesting things with data services and providing a fully integrated solution to their customer. And how do you guys make sense, uh, just even to outline the landscape? How do you differentiate between hardware, between IoT? Yeah, I guess it's uh, six of one, half dozen of the other. Is everything that's physical that has compute, that has power, that has connectivity? Is that an IoT device? Is that part of the Internet of Things? Yes, is like hardware in that category too, or is like one part of the other? To keep it simple, like I invest in like physical compute in a variety of different form factors that's embedded in the world around us. And when you do that at scale, you have the opportunity to build some really interesting software products on top of that. You know, there's lots, I think, I love when people say that hardware is niche because I actually think it's like touches everything, every industry, every type of market. There's just a number of different tailwinds associated with building these types of physical compute systems that have made it easier. It made it uh, possible for smaller teams to do so with uh, a bit of build these types of things with uh, less capital, greater efficiency, yeah, higher performance, all these types of things. So, yeah, one of the things I've been thinking about is if any company is actually a hardware company. I mean, I think the, the idea of looking for full stack companies sort of touches on it a little bit, but the idea that it's a hardware company is usually like the least interesting part of the story. It's like tip of the iceberg. It's what's going on. What you know? What is the competency of this team? What are they building towards? What, mm-hmm. You know, what does the power of this physical thing or the compute that it's operating enable further yeah. down the line? Like the tailwinds are sometimes, to me, the most hidden but way more interesting parts of the story. I think it's like I mean, you know, there's a great line. I think Steve Jobs stole it from like somebody else, but well, yeah, that's yeah, that's typical. <laughs> um, but you know, if you're if you're a good software developer, you realize pretty quickly that. You want to be able to control the development of your own hardware as well. And so lots of the types of companies and entrepreneurs that we work with, that we've invested the seed and series A stage, they're traditional software developers that have said, oh my gosh, like look at how the barriers to building hardware have dropped. And if I can build a system and put it over there, I can do some really awesome software. And you know, building hardware doesn't mean that you have to build everything from scratch. That's another great thing. Right? Like a lot of the tools that you need to build subcomponents that you need to build an integrated system can be off the shelf. And you can do so at you know a relatively low cost. So you know that's what I kind of mean by tailwinds, right? Like the barriers have dropped. You don't need fifty million dollars to get a hardware or a connected system out the door to market now. Um, you can do so with, with much less capital and fewer resources. And so why do people still continue to write off hardware, saying hardware is hard? And what do they uh, have correct, and what do they not have correct? I mean, I want to like add into this. I've been working with a hardware company for a couple of years, and, and the difference between going to market with a hardware product and going to market with a software product is quite different. And, and the step change to get to uh, future iterations and learn from your customer base and sort of get early customers bought in 
it's a, it's a different operation and it's, it's definitely different depending on the type of hardware. And if you're doing, you know, one type of installations, really heavy robotics, there's, it's completely different than trying to do, you know, a hundred million sensors and, and that the business models also mm-hmm. sort of dictate why it's hard and trying to get margin from, from the different system in terms of like the cost to development of a single system. It's also completely different. Like mm-hmm. the idea that we categorize them all together is, is kind of funny. And I, I wouldn't say that it's, hard and then in the sentence like that that's I mean, that's super misleading it's a fascinating complex system that requires like a, almost a different company design mm-hmm. a different operational design a different team design and investing in a hardware company isn't an easy thing to do which is i think why the eclipse team is is such a asset to the ecosystem but i absolutely agree, agree with all those points i think hardware is hard because it is hard there's the, the number of pitfalls that an entrepreneur or an early stage company can fall into on the process of going from ideation to prototype to, you know, all the way through your PBT, DBT, PBT, you know, figuring out which is the DFM that you need to hand to that contract manufacturer is, how you scale the mass production. Like that process, that manufacturing risk, that design risk, that manufacturing risk and that supply chain risk that you need to overcome in order to scale. What I talked about earlier, like putting physical systems in the world around us at scale to get to that place. There's a lot of things that you can run into and one of them can sink your company. You know, there's a lot of great stories about software companies that um, started off doing one thing with you know, half a dozen engineers mm-hmm. and, you know, five or 10 years later, they're multi-billion dollar companies. And the thing they're doing now that met, you know, enabled them to grow that way isn't what they started off doing. Like one of my right. favorites is Slack, right? You don't really see that a lot in the hardware space. Very, very rare for a company to ship a product, the market to reject it completely, and the company to still be able to pivot and survive without, like, you know, a substantial amount of capital basically start from scratch. And so, you know, you look at, like, let's look at 2017, right? A lot of high-profile hardware companies, venture-backed hardware companies with two team of hundreds of millions of dollars go belly up. I think everybody asks, like, why? And why were those bets made? And, like, where did you go wrong? And the answer is, like, lots of things, maybe. You know, maybe the company raised too much capital. Maybe they didn't hire the right people to make manufacturing. Maybe they fundamentally didn't approach the problem with the right system design. They didn't really understand the customer well enough. They didn't understand like what the cost of the systems needed to be to promote good new economics. Like there's just so many swirling things in there that can result in a, in a company like that going belly up. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons like you know, we started Eclipse like almost out of necessity. You know, my, my, my partner, Lior, who, who's the founder there. And all of us really in different capacities were working with hardware, hardware startups, full stack companies. And, you know, I was previously at GE Ventures um, as a strategic investor investing in industrial hardware, which is a lot of what I do now too. And, it, you know, I kept seeing like more and more really talented entrepreneurs solving, trying to solve like these hard mm-hmm. um, <laughs> industry wide problems, just struggled to raise institutional funding that exceeds here. Is that this like five, you know, four, five, right. six years ago? And not that there wasn't capital out there at the point, but there's just small, small amounts of folks. And, you know, I think that it's crazy to start a venture firm from scratch to be like a generalist because there's a lot of really yeah. like established generalist firms that are like, you know, that's where I would want to go raise money from. And so, you know, one of the reasons why I think we've been able to like get up and do our thing is because they were kind of looking at this like corner of the world that like nobody, well, not nobody, like very few right. people were like spending time thinking about. And like, that's all we do. And how has the space evolved since the clip started and you know, she'll be mentioned before the podcast that it was sort of Indiegogo era. Yeah. I mean, I think when I was yeah. investing in hardware startups in like 2012, 2013, it was, it was very much like, what does it take to scale a Kickstarter Indiegogo? There's like a whole movement in consumer hardware that 
was kind of open-ended. Like it seemed at least, you know, as a associate analyst during that time that there weren't great companies to learn from or to like look at the trajectory of companies and be like, Oh, this is, this is a pattern. This is a model. There weren't patterns for this, this type of ecosystem that had, had sort of surfaced. And I think it's shaken out a lot. Like the, the filter of what type of company should and can take meaningful venture backed money is not every company that makes the so-called products, it turns out. Right. And so there was a lot of experimentation, I think from, from the seed and series A ecosystem that made some of those early bets and, you know, we got to follow what, what, where the value was. And I, I'm particularly interested in like business models around hardware and what types of companies can create and capture value from de- deploying physical goods as well as software to, to these different industries, specifically in industrial and enterprise environments. I think that like Eero is an interesting company that mm. has, has kind of figured out how to t- be a venture growth business um, in some ways. And for the audience that may not know, describe what they do and why they're interesting. Um, so Eero is replacing the the home router. Mm-hmm. They're making it easy for you to get repeatable and reliable internet. Yeah. High, high quality bandwidth. High quality bandwidth. Yeah. Nick, Nick Weaver and Finland have built a, a great consumer consumer product that just enables you to have like more consistent internet coverage throughout your home. Um, they really hit upon a, a need, a consumer use case. Do you have like a comparable industrial side company that maybe we can throw in there as a in terms of early indicator pattern of like success of success. Yeah. Whether or not you invested in it. Yeah. Whether or not I invested in it or not. Well, I think like, you know, we can't forget that like hardware startups have existed for like a long time. Like the, the core of like where yeah, we all come from right, is, that. is, is, you know, we live in Silicon Valley. And so I, you know, it's, it, I guess going back to your question is like, what's changed now or what is changing now? And I think that, you know, like the, the, this, or, you know, this next wave of people focusing on these types of companies, like kind of first wave was very consumer oriented, like widgety type solutions, like, you know, go, 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 yeah. GoPro, GoPro. And, and Fitbit and Jawbone and like these types of things, Smart things. you know, I think as like, as people have found success in building these types of hardware businesses, you know, they've started to take like bigger and bigger swings. And I think also like what's happening for every, like, I love looking at chart, like, Nervous, but like I love looking at charts of like performance to cost curves mm. for every single like sensor <laughs> that's like out there, right? I mean, like ten years ago, how much did lidar cost? Like the lidar systems that were used on you know the you know, darker green challenge teams, like two thousand five, two thousand six, were like north of like seventy five thousand dollars. Now we're seeing like costs for like solid state lidar like you know, down below like five thousand, right? Like Velodyne. Like the new solid state, you know, like like that's just incredible, right? It's amazing what that enables you to do. Optics, right? Like optics connectivity is a big one too. Like I think that there's like all these specialized sensors and and the infrastructure side of what it takes to get hardware to market to have like meaningful Internet of Things is also on this connectivity conversation, the cost of connectivity. So like the deployment of five G and the chips that Qualcomm's putting out, like kind of changed the game in terms of available bandwidth and in most environments. And you see, I mean, like m- the mobile OEMs have like crushed cost and increased performance for like a bunch of different like subcomponents, and you see that proliferate out into like different form factor device form factors. And then because of that, like you're seeing like really interesting software development done on top of that. So like you look at like one of my favorite, like I, I focus a lot on robotics, and we do a lot of robotics investing at Eclipse. And when you look at like what Kivas, the architecture of a, of a Kiva system, right, embedded in an industrial warehouse back in you know 
2005, 6, 7, right? When the mountains and the team over there were building those things. And, you know, they had a lot of infrastructure and they had you know, a lot of costs in that system. And because of that, they had sale prices that really only enabled a certain set of customers in that market to access their solution. Now, you know, we're, you, you see companies like targeting that same application and the bomb cost of some of these robots that are autonomously moving through warehouses to enable more efficient picking and packing and you know, all this kind of uh, more efficient workflow. You know, you're seeing like some $10,000 bomb cost, right? And so what does that mean for democratizing access to a tool set that enables like just greater efficiency in that application, right? And that's really largely because of like the plummeting costs of all the subcomponents of that system, our ability to integrate together, our ability to rapidly deploy and build the software that's required to like enable those systems to see the world, understand what you're seeing actually in it. Like that's, it's, it's amazing to see that like we're at that place now right. and it's only getting better. What are other applications in these cases within robotics that you guys have been excited about? Or, or yeah. So if you go back to like, I, I, I did this like, again, like I'm a nerd for this. So I did this like thought exercise back in 2016 where I went through and found, you know, the, the team lists for every single team member or like member team of Bertina participated in the, the 2005 DARPA Grand Challenge, mm. which was the first like autonomous vehicle challenge that DARPA put on. And then mapped like all the members of the teams, like where they're at now. It's like really funny to see like where, like what companies are at, what companies have started and all that kind of stuff. And what do they do? Well, a lot of them are, like, some of them are at Waymo. Some of them have since left Waymo and started companies like Aurora and Argo. And, but then some, a lot of them are at Uber and some of them have started other companies. We backed a, a couple of those guys and probably called Lighthouse. But yeah, it's like that, that to me was like a seminal point in like the, like the proliferation of autonomous systems because it said, Okay, here, here's like a really holy grail application, right? We're going to put, uh, intelligence in a machine that can like really see the world, understand what it sees and actually see that world in a relatively uncontrolled environment. And that was pretty like, pretty groundbreaking. And since then, what you've seen is, is a number of different types of companies take that same architecture, right? How do I build, how do I take a sensor suite that allows me to understand the world? How do I compute what I'm seeing, understand what I'm seeing and drive you know, movement in the world that I now understand? And deployed them into all types of different environments. So, you know, from that challenge, right? Like that was like the, the a lot of the folks that were participating in that became the founding team at like Google X that started mm-hmm. you know, working on the autonomous vehicle projects there and involved into Waymo. And that's that's really great, right? Like that they've been working on that project for like ten years now, and like your guess is as good as mine for like when we actually see those things on the road. <laughs> but that same like architecture can be applied into environments that are more controlled, where the edge case scenarios that a system encounters aren't nearly as prolific. And because of that, you can solve for those variables and, and, and build a system that is reliable in a much easier fashion than you would in a more, in a more uncontrolled environment. So that's where, where I've spent a lot of time thinking is like how in the system design of an intelligent system or how many variables can you constrain in that system design to enable you to put a tool into an environment that is very reliable and consistent. And that's like the recipe for, I mean, for any product, right? Like any product you use, you want it to be reliable. You want it to do what its intention is. And well, I I think you bring up a really interesting and, you know, something that I had to learn kind of pedal to the metal is that it's not just a product. It's a system, right? And you're to, to architect a company that delivers value. You have to design for the entire system, not just for the product edge. And that, that, that sometimes is different when you have physical components and a full supply chain and you have to orient around, right. you know, d- differentiated users. Uh, I've been thinking a lot, especially in the autonomous space about security and how we value security is also how we think about transactions and embedding transactions into 
and embedding interoperability into those physical compute environments. This is kind of like a new frontier edge of hardware. It seems thematically that like not that the idea of adding all of these sensor and computes is also adding a ton of vulnerability. So especially in enterprise and industrial environments where they're used to having closed firewalls, where they're used to having full control and purview of like every interface and mobile desktop edge. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of things are built on premise. They don't really trust cloud environments. Obviously this isn't every company, but there, you know, there's some spaces in our physical world that are really locked down. So when you have these really, we're seeing this right now, like the news, right? Like the Intel hacks, like there's been a proliferation of hardware level security breaches at like at the chip level. Right. And so I I agree with you hundred percent, right. Your proliferation of connected physical systems, you know, they're going to, they're going to get hacked, right? And the security side of it is like incredibly important. Great. And I think in the autonomous vehicles, it's like, okay, they're great in these controlled environments. And we think about the vulnerabilities of having, you know, the cars that can talk to each other because of a certain bandwidth. That's great. Where's the security measures in place right. that meet that. And I think that a lot of the development right now in, in actually like smaller level sensor IOT is going to make it into these right. bigger systems, right. As they sort of get out of, Certain controlled environments. We invested in a company, Eclipse, called Tortuga. It's Turtle. Um, yeah. <laughs> love, love that name. Yeah. Um, it's doing like chip level analysis for uh, OEMs to help them understand like where potential like security breaches could occur. Right. At the hardware level or in for firmware as well. So I think, yeah, it's like it's a super important. You said you agree with Shopee 100%. I think you guys are agreeing too much. <laughs> where you guys disagree. Where do we disagree? I mean, I'm just being quiet. Um, I mean, I think that there are interesting companies that aren't full stack companies. I think the idea that you, that, the idea that there's a founding team that understands the industry, the market, the system, the hardware, the software, the firmware, all the intelligence layers, the, you know, interface design of the products that is going to go into this industrial possible environment, all the different usership is kind of the holy grail, but I, I do think that there are other players in the hardware ecosystem on the component level, on the software level, on the intelligence layers of, of imaging data or imaging processing, on security, on manufacturing that that aren't full stack and are, yeah. are horizontal value, you know, are, are driving value in those horizontal components that they're picking out. So that's... It's coming right at the judgment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know... He, he, I'm, I'm just not all about the full stack. I think there's other right. other things. That's that's my controversy. Yeah. What's your controversy? How you gonna respond to that? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I think by that bullshit. everyone is entitled to their own opinion, <laughs> and I, I have a healthy amount of respect for yours. I think that you know, going back to something we talked about previously, like there's so many pitfalls, and where I often see hardware companies or companies that are building physical systems go awry is when they are on, in control of their own destiny at every layer of development. And so, yeah, it may require you to hire like engineers and categories that you didn't think you needed to or didn't even understand like what you know what they did um it may focus you know force you to bring some elements of, of development in-house versus use subcontractors it may force you to you know be really you know, to, to raise more capital right like you're right it is more challenging i think to like to approach it that way but at the end of the day i think it's what enables you to control all the elements that of building your business to the extent that you can and i'm all about constraining constraining the variables like <laughs> Intelligent system design and products, intelligent system science and company formation. And, you know, I, I think like the companies I, the company, the large scale companies that are successful that are full stack companies practice that. So, full stack, I mean, just to challenge this a bit, like vertical integration, owning your own supply chain, owning, 
you know, thinking Apple level, like owning your own manufacturing facilities, like owning all your own product development, owning final assembly, that, that like level of touching everything. So they don't own their own manufacturing facilities. Right. They work with FIH. So I think that's like, it's, I sort of identify what's core and what's not core. Right. Right. And like, by all means, like there's, if there's an off the shelf sensor out there, there's like high performance and like meets the need, the spec of the product, like why would you build your own? But I wouldn't, you know, one thing that is a red flag for me in early stage companies is like outsourcing core development to like third party contractors. Like that's, that's an issue for me. Like I think we should bring that in house. If it's core, it should be internally mm-hmm. from the company. Have you, I don't know if like I've, I've had occasion to go visit the, the Tesla factory in Fremont. I'm um, actually played both sides of this argument. Like it's amazing, right? Aluminum comes in, the material comes in, they stamp it, they shape it, they assemble it. Like it's, it's, right. it's, it's unbelievable, right? It's yeah. in the end. On the flip side, like maybe that's why they're only like producing <laughs> a couple thousand cars a month, right? Well, it's right? funny. Like, it's like, a hard time. So it's, it's not easy, but it's a way to build defensibility. It's a way to capture like the most value and it's a way to control your own destiny at the earliest stages when there's a lot of barriers that would prevent you from being successful. Yeah. And the difference between the Tesla factory, the SpaceX factory and the Gigafactory are, you know, just an example of the array of uh, automation that exists in the space right now. Like they're, it's not like factory of the future is defined or or even factory of today is similar. Like we're, we're spanning decades, maybe, you know, centuries in terms of what, how things are made. So like in, in the SpaceX factory, it, it's amazing because they're making rockets, but right. everything is done by hand, right? Or like there's, there is very little repeat flow yeah. automation happening, even though, you know, it's, it's a similar, yeah. I, I, I was just, I think, I think that'll change though. But I mean, that's a big thesis of like messing with robotics, right? It's like how you take some of these like manual workflow. I mean, a lot, so first of all, lots of industrial manufacturing on like a cell by cell basis is automated, right? Like, you have companies like KUKA and Fanuc and ABB mm-hmm. that are building industrial robots that do like, repetitive things like over and over again for 30, 40 years. They're really good at doing like a couple things repeatedly, reliably, and super quick and precise. One, one of the big thing I think is interesting is like automotive, the reason automotive adopts uh, automation, for, you know, initially, right. That's like where automation is primarily deployed is because you know, you're, you're building this like one system, right. And you're, and you have a, a series of workstations over like you know, down the line that do like one or two tasks. Right. And the cost of the vehicle itself supports the, the capital expenditure required to actually embed automation. You can depreciate that over the value of the, of the, of the vehicle itself. And so when you start to think about, okay, how does automation start to be implemented into like lower cost manufacturing or heavily mixed manufacturing where you're trying to do like custom mm-hmm. SKUs and, you know, you're, 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 you're building shoes, you're manufacturing shoes or different types of textile materials or consumer electronics or anything right. like that you need like more flexible, lower cost solutions. And so that's a big area of focus in robotics right now. It's like, how do you do variable tasks? How do you reconfigure mm-hmm. automation lines? How do you suck out all the costs um, um, in these systems themselves? So they're actually, you know, it makes sense to purchase them or rent them and embed them on a line and you actually get the value out of it. Yeah. yeah I think one of the automation manufacturing is like, I don't know. I think it's going to change a lot. I think it's going to change. I just think we're, we're are starting, we're all not we, but, the space has many different starting points, right? Some some environments are completely digitized and some are still clipboards. And so some yeah. are fully connected, some are yeah. completely disconnected. And yeah. so that idea that you're kind of going into a more, and I'd say the same is true for agriculture, for farm, you know, for the different types of environments you're going into on the industrial yeah. front. Like everyone has completely different starting points of what they need. Uh, and so trying to retrofit a full stack or 
trying to build a, a full stack solution that might need to retrofit on different fronts um, yeah. to even get it to the point where it can be gone. I mean, you got to understand your market, understand your customer. Yeah, but they're all, as I'm saying, there's a lot of variety totally. on the customer that you might be totally. Do you build a robot to, like, till farms, or do you, like, make an existing tractor, like, autonomous? Right. I, I don't know, right? Like, yeah, construction's the same way, right? There's the whole, do you even, are you starting with digitization and then pr- providing an automation software, or, like, are you starting with a new tractor? So, like, what hardware you make is an important question to answer, <laughs> As, as you look at it. Yeah. And how do you, how do you even begin to answer those questions? Just customer discovery, just talk to people, seeing what's the best way to. I mean, I think Seth and I are young in this space and definitely haven't, we don't know the whole story yet, or I will speak that I definitely don't know the whole story, but I've so talked to like, even if we're old in this place, yeah, I, so I build you guys as experts. So <laughs> um, I've talked to like six, 700 industrial companies from a, from a research perspective in the last three years, just like, what is the state of your enterprise and where are you headed and what is your goals with any type of technology and just trying to get a, a feel for how the world works today. It's, I mean, what's fascinating is like, it's a lot of things that we might know how home automation works and we like might know some ideas of how we might use hardware in cities and like the whole smart city system. We might be able to imagine office scenarios, but like when you start looking at underground mining, for example, like I really don't know how that, how that business works. And so starting to dig into like where her, where connected hardware might be valuable to mining and, and you where mean like Bitcoin. <laughs> That's a whole nother story. I was at CES and the Kodak Bitcoin miner yeah. was a, was a big draw. Yeah. So you build products for, for customers and knowledge of your customers where everything starts and it's not different. It doesn't matter the product that you're building, whether it's a fintech product or a mobile app or a, a robot. Like you build the right tool for the customers to enable them to operate more efficiently or uh, reduce you know, to, to benefit them. Customer system design that is is so rooted in what the customer, what the problem is, um, is so important in hardware because if you build the wrong thing, you're screwed. So lots of times, you know, I think in robotics in general, like it's been a heavily robotic conversation, but I think it applies to other product categories too. Um, companies, companies build cool technology. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of robotics, so the pathway is littered with robotics companies that have fallen right. by the wayside because they built cool technology, but it, you know, didn't meet the customer's needs or it didn't have system cost was too high for the other. Are you saying you don't love those Boston Dynamics videos? <laughs> no. <laughs> the backflipping robots? How Paul Graham with you. Yeah. Make something people want. Yeah. Um, <laughs> say more about uh, how you, you guys think the field is going to evolve in the next five years. We talked about what the last five years look like. Clips start. Say more about how you're going to look and how new technologies are going to. You can go first. I can go first. Well, so I think we're in the early innings of how automation impacts like tons and tons of different industries that have like the re- right recipe for automation solutions, kind of like replacing replacing existing workflows. You know, any any labor. That's got any, any like labor force. It's like high churn, costs are rising, tasks that they perform are very manual, highly repeatable, data driven, you know, dangerous, right? Like those are great opportunities for automation to come in. Um, and so I think you're going to see a lot more companies in every single industry, and even some, and even some like non blue collar labor, right? Like some, some like that that same recipe applies to some white collar things as well. And maybe that's not hardware, but um, I'm just trying to see that happen. I think that like the you cannot underestimate the implications of what's happening right now in deep learning software development. And we are just getting started and we're doing it on imperfect tools, imperfect compute tools. 
you know, I don't know of a single product that was designed for one application that when it is in the perfect solution for another application. Um, that's what we're doing right now with GPUs. And so it's going to be really exciting in the next few years to see what the handful of these companies out there that are building like new computational architectures, specifically designed for training deep learning models, uh, come to market and what are the impacts of that going to be really, really cool stuff. I think that like medical devices or like healthcare in general, like moves us to the edge, moves to the edge in a lot of ways. I think you're seeing that happen with companies like One Medical and Forward from a primary care perspective. But, you know, we've talked a lot about like digital health, like everyone talks about digital health all the time. And, you know, where I think digital health has gone wrong is that a lot of companies tackle like general use cases when in reality, like what moves a consumer is like a really specific pain point. Um, so I've, we have focused at Eclipse on, on, on um, like diagnostic, medical grade diagnostic or therapeutic capability, moving outside of the point of primary care as close to the consumer as possible on really specific use cases. And what are examples of, of using this? Um, so one example is, is Outlet. Outlet is a, is an infant health monitor, medical grade pulse oximetry technology. When mom and dad bring the one baby home from the hospital, it's in the form factor of a snuggly little baby sock. Baby wears it at night and you, know, you can track things like oxygenation and heart rate and position. And it's shown to be an early uh, predictor of, of all kinds of, of causal factors that can result in infant mortality. You know, really cool company. They're not making any claims around that right now because they don't have FDA approval. But, you know, right now it's just that it's a, it's a, it's a device that helps parents have peace of mind at home. So the technology in it is, is on the pathway to being valid as being medical grade. I, you know, I have another company that I recently invested in that, um, is it public yet? But it, it targets a sleep-related issue. One like that I deal with, right? So it's very close to um, to my heart, and, um, and that's the same kind of thing like medical-grade therapeutic, so specific use case. So that's that's another category that or area of things yeah. I'm thinking a lot about. I would say so. I think hardware is going, or the space and the ecosystem in general is going to get edgier. Like kind of stuff was pointing. I think things in stream analytics, a lot of pushing logic to the edge. So you're not necessarily relying on large cloud infrastructure for every type of decision. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to become a lot more actuating versus just sensing. Like we've, we've sort of got to the point where the value of sensing from a buyer perspective isn't as valuable. Um, or like there, you know, there aren't that many excited buyers for just sensing, you know, the, this idea of being able to actuate the physical world. So edgier logic, I have a thesis that is probably not that popular, that it's going to be a lot more shared, that we're going to be looking at shared infrastructure and shared physical devices um, across companies between individuals, adding trust and interoperability at the edge sort of gives us that opportunity. So physical environments that have multiple buyers or multiple users, I think factories and warehouses are a great example where you Mm -hmm. have all the brands, you have the person who's running the machine line, you have the insurer of the space, you have the financer of the actual facility, you have the supply chain on either end. And all of these people are kind of sharing these data points. Oil refineries are another example of this. I think apartments and homes sort of can can play into that same theme. So, you know, one, I think it's going to get edgier too. I think it's going to become more shared where we're actually building different services on top of the same physical items. Mm -hmm. And, you know, buying into that same same line of thinking. I actually think that uh, monetization and transactions are going to become much more physical and physical, meaning machine to machine communications, mm-hmm. uh, micro transactions between machines. So something that we've seen a little bit, um, and we haven't talked that much about is like this idea of Echo and, or sorry, Alexa, right. Echo, Google Home. They're giving those things away like candy because it's not actually about the device itself, right? It's about this idea of having these like seamless transactions that happen through it. So 
you know, it's it, for me kind of interesting on a consumer level. Mm-hmm. This device is sort of a proxy for your buying behavior. Um, you don't have to like think that much about it. More interestingly is like, what if a machine has that ability to do, to make transactions to an, to another system or to, you know, like a full marketplace and do discovery and automated transactions between like robots to other robots. Mm-hmm. And is that what Alexa looks like in five years or? Um, I want to say that like Alexa necessarily gives that. I think that we've sort of seen this idea of connecting accounts through physical items to be pretty seamless. Like we've mm-hmm. gone from the mobile phone to this thing that doesn't have a screen and we like trust it. And and that has, you know, it just has, I think it has a lot of implications. So it's not a direct line necessarily, but the machine to machine communication. Right. Which also means that you stop paying for hardware, right? Yeah. So like this idea that you pay for the actual physical thing, yeah. the business models around getting hardware into the environments might, it might be in the data, but it also might be in the transactions that run through the system. Or like, I mean, the bomb cost of those extra dots is like 10, 15, 20 bucks. Yeah. Like that, right? or maybe, I mean, maybe they're selling it at loss, but they're selling it at break even. Yeah. I, so think- I, I totally agree with that. Not to be like so great. Yeah. yeah we, another, we really another, don't another, like, another <laughs> or buddies. Yeah. Another big, um, <laughs> The big thing that, like, I am so, like, hoping will change is how we move through the world. Who enjoys getting on the morning? Who enjoys the process of booking a ticket, More delay. going to the airport, getting on an airplane, flying somewhere, right? It is the worst part about traveling. Right, so probably the only other industry that's more hated in the commercial the airline industry is the telecommunications industry. Right, like who who's allowed to exist with that much, like at a higher percentage of GDP with an NPS score that they have? Right, like it just blows my mind. And um, you know, the future that I see for that is like fully electric, fully autonomous, you know, local and regional transportation through aviation modalities um, that are you know, available, you know, on demand, right, or like very close to being on demand. And the infrastructure exists, right? We've got uh, uh, thousands of commercially regulated airports in the United States that like, we don't use because it's not efficient to use them. So you look at like the business model of commercial service in the airline industry and like a lot of it, like planes are freaking expensive and there's like two big manufacturers of planes, right? So can we SpaceX that thing and like suck a lot of the cost <laughs> out of that and like bring it in? And then obviously a huge element of the operating expenses is dependent on hydrocarbon fuels. Not only is it terrible for the world yeah, and our environment, but it's a huge like opex expenditure. So what, what's preventing us from your future? Is it te- technology? Is it regulation? Is it all the above? It's all. It's uh, both of those. I think there's a lot. Like, there's people that are working on electric aircraft today. Right. There's, a, there's a general school of thought that we need to like, reach a certain energy density at the cell level in order to make that possible. Um, I do not share that belief, and um, I think that's kind of like saying. You know, if we had more energy density in the cell or in a Chevy Volt and a Nissan Leaf would go farther. <laughs> uh, instead, let's just build like the best battery possible and wrap a car around. Yeah, I, in this dream world, so, like, same like, dream how, world. How great would that be? How great would that it be? would be great. My dream world, same one, also is very screenless. So I'm, I'm not a proponent of everything being mobile and having app, you know, web apps. I, there, there's a time and place for being on devices, like as we've seen them. But one of the reasons I'm so invested in the vision of hardware is that I think there's a way we can move to this world that doesn't involve us looking at screens, right? And so Amen. there's, I, you know, not necessarily VR or AR as much as what about our walls, right? Like what about our doorways? What about the invisible technology that can sort of exist through these physical compute environments? Yeah. I want the elegance and grace to sort of that experience <laughs> design to like make it to the physical world. That's the designer in there. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that the idea of a technology experience that you have no idea is technology is is one that I'm aiming for. And hardware makes that possible. You just have to look a little bit yeah. you know, closer into it. I don't know what this looks like from it. I guess we're just like spitballing about yeah, dreams right now. <laughs> yeah. which is, What's your dream? Yeah, which, part. which is a great, a great thing to do on a Friday afternoon. Totally. I don't know like how this in, you know, kind of like intersects with my investment thesis at Eclipse, but it's high time like we, as like entrepreneurs and people that are like trying to like hopefully push the world forward in some way, shape, or form, like really tackle a lot of these issues around mental health and say more about that. I think that technology is a tool. Uh, in a lot of ways, it's a positive tool, but it's also like there's a double-edged sword to like everything you build, and people increasingly feel more isolated, and people increasingly feel more of of less value and of less worth, and uh, you know more focused on the superficiality than things of substance. That's a sad thing to me, and you know in a world where like the number one cause of death for like men, and I, I know this isn't for men, but maybe equivalent as well, but for men under like forty, I think it is, is suicide. Like, that's a scary thing. And, like, the uh, just there's an opioid addiction crisis right now. Homelessness in San Francisco, like, there's a correlation between like, a lot of these things. I'm really interested in, like, companies that, or people in general that are just focused on, or they're, they're doing something innovative in, like, those spaces. Like, have have we, you seen anything? We invested in a company, uh, Brightside, and it's trying to, do you follow NERCs at all? NERCs. Uh, NERCs is basically, it's a, uh, I invested in that one early. It <laughs> prescribed a liver birth control. And okay. make it super easy for people to get birth control and also now okay. uh, prep and other stuff as well. Okay. And they're trying to do the same thing for antidepressants. A okay. lot of people want to be taking antidepressants yeah. or don't know that they should be taking antidepressants and just the logistical hurdle of getting yeah. them is too difficult to buy. Yeah, I think as well as like there's there's a huge stigma in our society around therapy right. and like going to see a professional yeah. about like these types of things and so people don't do it. I also think people don't do it because it's freaking expensive. And you know, getting access to like high quality therapy is like not something that's been democratized to people that like can't afford to go pay two hundred fifty bucks an hour to somebody who's like you know, out of pocket, mm-hmm. right? Not in your network. And that's a travesty, right? Like how do you scale that? How do you scale that service? Yeah, something to think of also and this is I think what root cause thinking, you know, obviously mental health has, has many genetic and other causes, but like what's causing strife that we don't know about, right? Is it sitting in traffic? Is it um, coming home to TVs and computers and feeling lonely? Is it the lack of community in our buildings? You know, and how do we, how do we re-architect or or at least think about, you know, what those causes are and try to design a better world that, that may not just service, but also eradicate. We were joking about mining earlier. Bishop, I know you've thought a lot about the intersection of blockchain and hardware and IoT. Uh, talk a little bit about where you see that going or what's interesting there. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I've worked a lot on the protocol layers for machine-to-machine communication and contractuality. So looking at where the interaction of authorizing one device to talk to another or transact payment to another is. It turns out that distributed ledger technologies and blockchain offer like a really good mm-hmm. system for this idea of like trust between machines, especially if we don't know that we're all working in the same ecosystem forever. So a great use case to think about is like a drone and drone navigation. So for a drone to pick up data from the field, deliver it through you know, different airspace that's authorized, you know, overseen by different authorities, maybe have to go through a warehouse, you know, airline hangar to deliver it. If we're looking at the relationship between the drone and all these different physical environments, mm-hmm. there has to be some purview of, 
of trust and oversight. And so the idea that you'd have like pervasive connectivity where you could just check a cloud for that type of that for that type of trust relationship or even like the idea of sign in passwords, which like who owns the drone? Like does someone have to own it? Can you can you have it be a function have it function in this system like rather than and shared kind of Yeah. One question I have like this like you know we've done so much more work on this in my head. What I'm curious about is like obviously like this intersection of like physical systems and decentralized edge computing. Like, yeah, absolutely. Right? And you know, like I can't even get my Bitcoin in my Bitrix account on like a time scale that like you know, is is like yeah opportunity. Like, how 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 do you like transfer data in real time like on like, well, it's a, it's transaction a speeds question. and like and scalability of that network and all that kind of stuff? Like how far how how far away do you think we are from? So there's a lot of work being done right now on off chain, both rated network and lightning, um, and and Ethereum is thinking about this too. The company I've been with, Filament, we're looking at how to create this kind of off-chain authorization on device into a chip, into a component, mm-hmm. so that device could talk directly to a distributed ledger yeah. technology and do yeah. the elliptic curve required to create that type of transaction clearance. The elliptic curve was um, So it's the the cryptographic signing that creates okay. a hash the same way you would when you're like making a crypto transaction. It's actually pretty similar to the type of uh, security authorization, but it's been, it's a completely different, uh, function right now. Right. So like most of our physical devices aren't capable of doing that type of encryption on device right now. They mm-hmm. require offloading it to a, another server or information mm-hmm. system to do it. Mm-hmm. So like when we talk about getting edgier, it's like putting more of these functions and processes on the actual mm-hmm. device in field and not requiring it to like send that, that action out. So I, th- I think that like, can you, do might, that? can you do that on like basic like compute, like super compute efficient, like low power requirement? Yeah, so like the a lot of the time cost is dependent on like the available, which is why there's yeah. a lot of conversation about like the energy suck of Bitcoin right. is because the the power required to like run the compute for this network is yeah. um even when you're distributing it, it slows a lot of the system. And down. when people complain about you know, or use that as sort of a knock against cryptocurrencies, are you sympathetic to that or do you say, hey, you're sort of missing the forest from the trees or what's um, I wouldn't even say that I'm like all in on crypto or all in on any blockchain at this point. I think that the idea of having like, I think Hashgraph is really interesting, like different types of consensus mm-hmm. mechanisms where we're just coordinating across unknown players. So the idea of like, this, it's like the same way integrations are interesting. Like, okay, you can build an integration between two enterprise softwares and now they can talk to each other. Or like you can have a Slack widget. Mm-hmm. Imagine that idea of like, I can create a, open field for communication of a system that I don't necessarily know today. Mm-hmm. Right. And that, and trust them to interact with my system. I'm thinking of it more in use cases. I think of yeah. supply chain authorization between and like, like tons like, of different parties. It's such a beautiful vision at scale, but like for a startup, like you do, you do one thing, you do it well and you step function your way to the next thing. And like, that's how you build a business. Like, it, does it work on an incremental basis? Like, well, I think that what's happening right now, there's a you know a few companies that are looking at that intersection, and and you know where filament was is we were looking at connectivity needs. So how do you answer connectivity needs of a company uh, where they're looking for wireless in remote environments and answer it with something that's yes, we'll give you connectivity, we'll also give you this ability for your machines to make money and like monetize the data that they're collecting in a way that's reliable, private, and secure. And so there, there is some enterprise interest right now in like this, this space. And I think, you know, there's, you can do it. Like if you just think about a car, right? You could embed this function in the engine. You could embed it in the operating system. You could put it on the autonomous software layer. You could, you know, like every 
every layer has its own benefits mm-hmm. of having it. And so I, I, I think it's really early, but um, in the same way that e-commerce missed the like first internet wave, I really hope that uh, transactions are part of the first, you know, the value of the internet of things. Like it doesn't. E-commerce missed the first internet wave. I mean, it took a while. Like the protocols don't have transaction built in. Imagine mm-hmm. that. Imagine all these companies that have taken the internet and created commerce yeah. had to build a separate mechanism for right. it, right? And so I think like if you look at the combination of you know PayPal and eBay and Stripe and Amazon and you know uh, Plat, like these companies that are layering on augmenting and you know protocols, like there's there's an opportunity for us to do that from physical ground layer mm-hmm. if, if we give the hardware, right? If we give the hardware the right capacity to do so. But yeah, I wouldn't say I know for sure how it's going to all shake out. The going back to startup for a second, you guys both must talk to a lot of entrepreneurs who want to build something in hardware, but they're sort of thinking about where in the ecosystem they should play. They should play. How do you, how do you advise them? Like where do you say, Hey, here's how you should think about it. Or here's where you should look. Or how do I advise them on how to find a problem? That's what yeah. you're working on. Yeah. <laughs> What are they like laying in bed, like thinking about that they can't <laughs> stop thinking about? What it's like, do they, what's something they want to like put their heart and soul into for the next 10 years? But do they bring back problems to you and then you're like, ah, that's not big enough, or that's like already ways you crowded, or that's, you know, I think like, be sure I was talking about like my opinion, right? Like, right. I'm not, who am I to tell anybody like what's worth working on and what's not worth working on? I have my own perspective on what are businesses that I think can be venture backable businesses. Well, here's a question. If you were starting a business right now, what business would you uh, That's a great question. <laughs> well, I'm like, obviously, I sleep in the robotics space right now. And um, so I think there's a lot of like low-hanging fruit, right? I think like it's ridiculous that a lot of the workflows that exist within like large-scale hospital systems are automated, right? Like we live in a world where there's an unbelievable nursing administration shortage. And more and more hospitals, I mean, all hospital systems today are like federally for the time being. Um, to like, have, like report like customer satisfaction metrics, right? Customer satisfaction is driven by like FaceTime, like Patient. human engagement Patient. and like <laughs> nursing assistants are yeah. like doing very remedial tasks, like moving things from A to B or restocking supplies. Or anything. There's a company that for sure. There's another company that I would build. I'm, we haven't talked about it at all, but like I think metal additive manufacturing is going to be something that fundamentally changes like you want to describe what metal out of manufacturing is? Yeah. So, I mean, like, so traditionally, like, all manufacturing techniques, like, tooling and machining have been subtractive, right? Like, take a piece of metal, you shape it, you, like, use a different type of tool to, like, form it into the parts you want. And then that part is used and fixed to other parts to create, like, a fully simple, whatever, car, jet engine, whatever it is. What if you could design a part in CAD that can be, like, you know, it's the integration of 25 different pieces and it's all built into one part because you're fusing different layers of metal material together. And there's a lot of different approaches to do that. The traditional approaches in companies like EOS and whatnot are DMLS and SLS, right? So like the ways you right are centering, um, using fiber layers to basically like fuse on a pixel by pixel basis, mm-hmm. uh, powder, metal, metal powder, and then build on a layer by layer basis. Um, problem with those approaches are, well, the reason why those approaches haven't like really truly like proliferated for all manufacturing is largely related to Cost, speed, and like quality of the parts themselves, the material properties of the parts. Turns out like tensile strength, porosity, and elongation metrics for like something that's machined is pretty freaking good. And we've got to be as good, if not better, in order to replace it. So I think, you know, uh, I'm working with a really early stage company right now after looking at like probably 40 companies in the space over the last like five years that I think has got like a really good shot of, of kind of building production or being able to manufacture through additive approaches production grade parts. 
at a speed and a cost basis that allows a whole like litany of elements of, 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 of the manufacturing market segment mm. to access this technology. And I think that's really exciting because it changes design principles. It changes the way a mechanical engineer fundamentally thinks about building a physical thing when you're doing it from an additive perspective. And you're going to have like, you know, when these platforms exist and when they exist at scale, you're going to have a, a generations of engineers that look back at how we did things and think that it's like the most archaic approach to systems design, physical system design that's out there, right? And so, you know, also what happens, like you, you talk about like moving to the edge, becoming edgier, right? Like manufacturing is the most centralized thing ever. Right? And what happens when I'm working on an oil site and a part that I need in real time, like I need right then breaks down, right? right. Now I'm a slave to the inventory I have on site, which is costly, or the lead times associated with getting that part manufactured in traditional fashion. With it, just punch it right there. So I think that's you know like the the movement of 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 material manufacturing to the edge at a cost basis that actually makes sense is is really that's a that's something. I would say one of the things I predict is more shared knowledge. Um, I would say that like the ecosystem has is globally proliferating. Like the amount of knowledge in China and different markets, India, parts of Africa that are getting really into making commodity. Things are also, you know, starting to try to build full stack companies. And, and I mean, even just looking at the Bay Area and the IoT meetup ecosystem, it's just, there's so many people who are touching this that I think there's going to be a consolidation of that type of knowledge where it's not, you know, it's not like everyone can build a great hardware company, but like a lot more people are more likely to build a great hardware company or company that involves hardware. Mm. And we're moving towards the, in the same way that, you know, software has become like, Democratized, I, I think we're we're getting closer to that future. Uh, just like last remarks, if please. Anybody who's building, anybody's listening, that's building physical things, I'd love to talk to you about it. Same. Same as always. I also think that like this world that we live in, like this ecosystem, right, has for a long time been like an old boys club, and you know, like for a long time, like investors and in some case entrepreneurs have like held the keys to the kingdom, like waxed philosophical as a daughter's of access and like derive and decide who gets access and who doesn't. And one of the things I'm excited about is like, I know there seems to be like shaking going on right now. And I think it's like uprooting a lot of things and, you know, uprooting a lot of like old ways of thinking that I think is like right now it's like under the microscope and it's, and it's on the spotlight, but like it only good can come from that. And, you know, I look at like what you're doing, Eric, what Eric's doing, like what Shelby's doing, our peers and, you know, I, I get excited by a couple of different things. I get excited by like, the diversity of thinking. I get excited by, you know, the, the freedom of like judgment or like pressure to do things in a certain way. And I get excited by the collaboration. Companies and investors don't need to be as like cutthroat competitive as I think that they have been in this ecosystem in the past. Like, there's an opportunity to like be collaborative and still be more ruthless about building the business and maniacal and, and hustle and all that kind of stuff. But there's a way to like bring them along with you as you as you do it. And I think I see more of that from kind of like our generation of people that are working in, in this ecosystem. And this, like, really She'll be Seth. It's been a pleasure. 